0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with High Performance Director at Columbus Crew in the MLS, Steve Tashjian. Okay, thanks for tuning in to the Pace of Performance podcast. So today, today, tonight, I am delighted to welcome Steve Tastian to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Steve.
1: Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it, man. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be with you.
0: It's great to have you. Um, so just want to give us a little bit of background on you and, and your education and your, what you're currently doing.
1: I'm currently the High Performance Director with Columbus Crew Soccer Club and Major League Soccer here in the States. And I got started within uh, this particular industry uh, as a physical therapist. Uh, my graduate work is in physical therapy after finishing my undergraduate in psychology. And as I was finishing my PT degree, uh, uh, at the same time I was uh, receiving my certification in strength and conditioning. Uh, luckily enough, when I finished schooling, my first job was with the competitive athletic training zone in in Pasadena, California, with Jim Liston, who at the time was the strength and conditioning coach for the LA Galaxy. So, I started off immediately in MLS uh, within the realm of of training soccer athletes. First, as a strength and conditioning coach in the mornings, assisting Jim, and then um, treating patients as a physical therapist and athletes in his uh, in his facility there in Pasadena. So it was a, it was a great entry point for me to learn from from jim as a strength coach and then really take on information on function and treatment and evaluation with kevin wins some Garcia guys that were working within the facility i can put training zone there and, and that got me off to my start um then you know being introduced uh, to gary gray along the way and and receiving my really what i would say is my philosophy on on uh, physical therapy and performance enhancement through, uh, you know, the wonderful methodology of Gary Gray. And then, and then continuing to just have my own experiences to develop it and shape it and make, make my own philosophy and methodology out of it is how I progressed through, uh, through the years. You know, once I was, um, I kind of had some time to myself within sport, within the private sector, I had the opportunity to, to take on a more lead role. Uh, within an MLS club, and that's when I first came out to Columbus Crew. I had the time there to be the head of fitness with Ziggy Schmidt during 2007, 2009, and uh, experience coaching with with uh, with a legend in U.S. soccer with Ziggy, and having that that run with with the with the club during that time frame, and having some success there. And then, uh, you know, through through athletes' performance, I had the opportunity to to then take up a similar role with with Everton. Uh, in Liverpool for for five seasons. And then, you know, come bringing things back full circle and um, now having a family and and wanting to be back in the States again, we were able to come back to the club and and join Columbus Crew Soccer Club again. And this time as the high-performance director, a little bit different role with a little bit different ownership group and direction from a new head coach and having the opportunity to be where we are now, you know, developing something new and something that we feel is... um, contributing to the progression of Major League Soccer and, and really enjoying it.
0: Nice. So what was, what was the MLS like back in 2007, 2008 compared to what it's like now?
1: Overall, the, the league has grown in many, many different ways. There's more clubs. There's a, more, there's a greater emphasis on the, the global uh, traits of, of, the, of the global game, soccer-specific stadiums, Newer training facilities, the the advent of the designated player rules started to bring uh, global names to the sport. It started to encourage teams to you know contribute more resources to scouting to performance, and gave us the opportunity as fitness coaches slash sports scientists to start really having a, a, a greater ability to enhance these performance programs, whether it be through technology, whether it be through um, sabbaticals at, at different European clubs to gain more experience. All these things uh, have contributed to the league uh, and the players themselves growing in talent and, and growing in stature. The, the play itself, I feel like MLS has always had a certain... Uh, level of soccer that that was respectable I, I never felt that it was a poor league I did feel that at times the infrastructure of the league was uh, was needed to catch up uh, on a professional level but the players that, that have come through and the uh, you know the, the soccer that I've seen over the last 10 years although it has gotten better and, and the technical ability of the players has gotten better there's still that raw um uh, uh, physical um, demand that, that's always been there, and I think that's a very interesting hallmark of the club. You know, we we have to deal with certain aspects of travel and time change, and you know, and you know the the, uh, the just dealing with the vast size of the country is something that is unique to our league that you don't find in European leagues. And that makes it a little bit more difficult to find results on the road you know you don't have two to five to six thousand supporters following you from one one venue to the next you know you're dealing with a much bigger um gap in in the support that you get from home home fixtures to away fixtures Uh, and that's that's always been there Uh, something unique to the to the league that will always separate it from european leagues but uh, in general, I think the coaching's gotten gotten better. I think there's been a greater emphasis on young young coaches with MLS experience who are now becoming head coaches. That's, I think, in turn allowed the way the clubs are handled to be more sensitive to the players. I know for for us for sure, we've made a greater emphasis to be a player first club, and that it, it makes it a little bit easier because the league is in a better financial state than it was ten years ago. So. Uh, instead of decisions by each individual club uh, being made maybe first to satisfy financial requirement. Now we're actually starting to see clubs make, make decisions that are player first decisions. And I, and honestly, as sad as that is, that wasn't necessarily the case 10 years ago. So, uh, it's, it's grown leaps and bounds. And I think the, the uh, the trend is still moving upward. I don't think it stopped. I don't think it will for quite some time, and it's and it's exciting. There's a much better product on the field, and it's and it's starting to gain some traction. I think globally, so that's that's a good thing for the
0: league. Hmm. I just just remember, then it's the um. I think he's the first American manager in the Premier League, or
1: mm-hmm, surely
0: mm-hmm. with with uh, Bob Bradley at Swansea.
1: Yeah. Has he, has he
0: been? Has he been? I mean, this is just talking from a fan to a guy that's. On the inside, I'm just interested. Sure, um, nothing to do with training or what I, anyone wants right. to hear about. But um, what will is he? Is he quite kind of Europeanized, or is he still? Is it will he still bring the kind of the, he thought the um, I don't know the, the philosophy of coming from the US?
1: Yeah, to be perfectly fair, I don't know Bob personally. Uh, in, in my circle, I know many people that played for him. I know many people that have coached with him. What I'll tell you is U.S.-European um, U.S. US European methodology, I don't think, comes much into play. I, from what I understand, Bob is Bob. And I think he said it best when um, when interviewed and the statement was, you know, how do you feel as the first American manager in the Premier League? He said, well, I don't feel I'm a, an American manager. I'm a football manager. And I think that was a great way of, of kind of, uh, you know, encapsulating what I've learned about Bob just in talking – with with different people. Uh, he's a strong individual. He's experienced. And you're going to get Bob no matter where, where he is, whether he's in Norway, whether he's in France, whether he's in the US or whether he's in England. It sounds like from what I've gathered that, um, you know, he's a, he's a strong individual that likes a challenge. And you know the individual country isn't, isn't going to change. Them. You know, Bob is Bob. I think that's the best way I can describe what I've learned of since uh, since the whole uh, news broke up in up in England.
0: Mhm. So what? So obviously, you you spent um, five years in the UK, at Everton. What what did you bring from the what you'd learned in the US over to the UK, and then vice versa from the UK back home?
1: That's a great question. I think. the... One of the things that players like most is that my vocabulary, my way of handling the players, my speech were all quite unique to them. Uh, I think it was fresh and it was different. The the way I train players is, uh, I wouldn't say is an American way of training players or a European way of training players. I believe that function has a very, very specific definition, regardless of what it's been turned into over the years. I believe mean, human movement has a very, has a few very specific key elements to it, and as long as those particular elements are the basis from where you're working from, and as long as the direction you want to go in is purely focused on. Uh, you know, peer transfer, and I don't think the rest of it really gets regionalized. And I think, as I brought that particular approach to the way we we're handling things uh, off the training pitch, I think that was a very fresh and, and new thing for the players that uh, that they gravitated to. You know, we were dealing with limited budgets here uh, before I left. so you know i was I was used to getting things done with limited resources, and that really forces you to be, Creative in the way you problem solve. So once we got into that realm where maybe my financial resources were greater, uh, I think it still helped that I had this um, this this part in me that still wanted to try to do things the simplest way possible, uh, and that I still brought a critical thinking element to any any problem we were trying to find a solution for. So that in particular. I think, allowed us to be a little bit more thorough, a little bit more thoughtful in the way we approach certain situations. And, and I, it definitely produced uh, some some more useful ideas for us in how we approach certain circumstances, whether it be uh, in the GPS situations, which was new to the club when I arrived, but whether it was something as simple as deciding how we were going to monitor the players from a wellness perspective or whatever it might be. So those... Those things helped in that regard. In terms of how it affected me when we came back, is I just think I had the the ability to try everything. Uh, you know, there wasn't necessarily a financial restriction per se. Uh, you know, we weren't spending Man United money or anything like that. But when you compare what I had at Everton to what I had at Columbus Crew the first time around, I really was you know able to to, to at least experiment with anything that was technologically advanced or new on the market, or it allowed me perhaps because the club I was at to get access to another European club that allowed me to visit and spend some time there that I might not get a chance to do because of the distance that I had to travel from the US. All these things contributed to me coming back to the club and having a much more well-rounded perspective on what's available to help monitor players, to help train players, to help prepare players. And then, filter through them all and decide now that I'm back in an environment where every penny counts, what am I actually going to use? How do I simplify it to the point where I'm not restricted necessarily by a financial restraint, but now I have the wherewithal to understand what, what pieces of technology just provide noise and which ones really have robust information that can give me guidance in preparing the players to the best of my ability. I think that probably was the greatest contributor. On top of that, I probably learned more about the sport in terms of the beauty of it, the strategy of it, uh, being abroad. Uh, A great opportunity under two managers to really listen to coaches talk. And I think that was sometimes gets missed, understanding things from a team perspective, understanding things from a positional perspective, and then just hearing coaches talk about tactics. Uh, they're going to approach an opponent how are we going to press the pressure how are we going to attack the opponent all these things allow you then to start thinking about you know how do I want to train them now to prepare them for our style of play and how do these two different realms of uh, you know performance enhancement and tactical and technical preparation blend together in a way that now enhances the product on the field and, and those were those were great you know uh, and, a, and a lot of that, started with David Moyes. And then I had another, you know, great experience in a unique way to, to hear a different approach under uh, under Roberto Martinez. And I think those contributed to me coming back to Columbus and having an understanding, a greater understanding of the vocabulary that Coach Walter uses. He's a very attack-minded coach, uh, a very possession-based coach. And I think it all allowed me to have a much better understanding to hear the vocabulary and be on the same page and now uh, blend the, the technical preparation of the, of the team with the physical preparation of the team. And that all gave me a much more well-rounded ability to come back and know exactly how I wanted to run a department. I think that was the one thing that I always wanted the opportunity to do. I felt as I got towards the end of my time at Everton that I felt like I was finally ready. You know, I had been a physical therapist, i have been a physio, Now I've been a fitness coach, head strength and conditioning coach. Now I've been a head of sports science. And I felt like I'd been in every department now. And if I was going to be a high-performance director and have my opportunity to develop my own methodology on how to integrate every aspect of the sports medicine and sports performance needs of a professional club, what would it look like? How How would I integrate it from top to bottom? And by the time I left Everton, I felt like I finally had that uh, idea, that that final product, uh, no longer a rough draft methodology that I could implement now, and mm-hmm. and that, that brings us to where we are today. You know, two years into implementing, uh, you know the what we would, you know I guess call the home crew uh, You know, having a real finite idea about how we want to prepare players.
0: So on your return to Columbus, what did you what did you bring with you with, with regards to um what you mentioned there, the tech? What what did you bring back and think this has to be, we have to do our utmost to to get that and spend that money and get that product? Or mm-hmm. um what did you and what did you bin? What did you think, yeah, we can do without that? We haven't got the resources for that, I'm not gonna fight for that. What were the what were the two things that the the kind of needs and the not needs?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, after five years of dealing with GPS, I, I felt like we had finally filtered out a lot of the noise. Uh, I have a much different approach to how we assess, uh, you know, u- using, using the information and, and then conveying it in a way that really tells us something about the, the training session itself, not just short term, but long term. You know, we started using Statsports, the Viper system, about two years into my time at the club and I've grown quite comfortable with that product, and we—we we, that was one of the products that I brought here to the club, uh, just because I had a fantastic understanding of it, and uh, that was that was one avenue I felt was necessary to bring to the club here for us to to really be able to monitor the players well. On top of that, I felt strongly that we needed to maintain some sort of daily uh, assessment subjectively and objectively of the readiness of the players. Uh, I had a great opportunity to meet Jason Kalman, who was at Linster Rugby at the time. And he introduced me to, uh, you know, the way that they assess some biomechanical measures for the players. And then, uh, you know, a very simple way that they address the, the wellness perspective, nothing crazy on the wellness side that you wouldn't see in most wellness reports, just having the opportunity to give the players uh, you know, a chance to tell us how they're feeling, but then a very quick assessment, uh, five-minute assessment of of the players' movements and joint stiffness that allows us to uh, to not ask a lot of the players in terms of their time. You know, I think that's something that gets missed quite a bit is that uh, the these, each player is trying to prepare each day to train in a way that uh, that allows them to to trend towards peak performance on the weekend. We ask a lot of their time already uh, because we want to help them in that process. But at the same time, we also want them to have the freedom to feel like they're preparing in an individual way. I didn't want what we did at the club to be highly time-consuming. I don't think that's an effective way of developing a performance mindset. I don't think it's a way of developing buy-in from the players. It needs to be something where they're there. They can visibly see that we're being consciously aware of their time. And Jason's system at the time, which eventually morphed into Kitman Labs, and um, and, the, and the great things that Steve Smith and the guys are doing over there, allowed us to kind of sample what we were doing around those early years at Munster Rugby, and we still maintain that today. Uh, our early recording of the data was very simple. It was it was handwritten um, on laminated sheets and recorded into Excel and. Uh, through some tricks that Matt Taverner over at Everton showed me with uh, PowerPivot. You know, we were very simple in the way we addressed our analysis. And uh, still to this day, I've shown people how we utilize PowerPivot to give us the data analytics that we use now. And people love it. There's so many different systems out there and deeper analytical tools. But at the end of the day, you know, Excel still is very powerful. And that's just that simplistic mindset that I've always had. That's helped. And now as we start to move into you know, a more modern need for this data to kind of talk to each other in a more robust way, uh, we've started to bring in some data management systems. And currently we're we're a year into a relationship with Coach B Plus, and that's been a great relationship. And that's not necessarily a relationship I developed when I was when I was abroad, but the idea of a data management system uh, was more and more on um, Uh, was more and more interesting to me in my later years at Everton. So I'd say those are the simple things that we brought to the table from a tech perspective. Uh, Some of the things that I didn't feel were necessary is I wanted to move away in the beginning from um, any sort of saliva measurements, blood measurements, where we were looking for daily monitors of fatigue through through bodily fluids. I, I didn't want to go that route. I still don't go that route now. Um, you know, those assessments are somewhat time-consuming, and there's some cost associated with them that I didn't think was an effective way for us to spend our funds here at the club. Uh, and and until I kind of see a change in in how it's how the, the samples are taken, until I see a change in how quickly results can come, I still don't see it being something that I would incorporate into the club now. Until that becomes a little bit a uh, little bit more. Um, Efficient, I think, is the best word to to start utilizing that here. And the last thing is I don't want to invade the players' uh, personal space yet. I don't want to be in their bedroom in terms of sleep monitoring. um, We've got a really good group of players that over the past two years have been very candid and honest about how well they're sleeping. Um, I have a level of trust with them now where... If there was a bit of behavior that caused one thing or the other that might not be appropriate, they'll know. They know that there'll be some discretion in, in whether it gets communicated. And um, I think we've developed a really nice trust that allows me to to collect some really really good subject, subjective information from the players. And um, we've we've done so well in that regard that we've been able to to pass on on delineating those resources financial resources to sleep products. Uh, and still, and still predict uh, when and where we need to overload or offload our individual players. So I, I think we've done quite well with the resources we've had to limit to limit the, the funds that you can spend on technology and perhaps even avoid some of the noise that comes with. It.
0: Mm-hmm. So with so many, well, talking about the, the, especially with the time of Everton with so many data sources. Mm-hmm. How were you How are you delivering that message and telling that story back to the coach? What did that report? Was it a report? Was it... Did that accompany a conversation? How did that, that message get delivered to coaches and maybe how does that differ now if it differs at all?
1: Yeah, I think it differs with every manager. It certainly has for me up to this point. Um, if I was to go all the way back to my times with Ziggy, we were really starting to incorporate some new ideas, at least from an MLS standpoint. I mean, listen, heart rate monitoring was new in MLS when I started. Uh, so at that point, because it was so new and uh, and because I had a clear idea of how I wanted to to utilize it in training and then report it to the coaches, you know, Ziggy was very, very receptive to it. Uh, he, he knew that I had done a lot of homework and wasn't going to try to he wasn't going to try to manipulate the, the results of it or downplay the validity of it. He simply said, you know, you have a clear objective on how you want to do this. And I'm going to trust, uh, you know, I'm going to trust your evaluation of how things are going with training and and, and how you use the information to, to change training loads. And we were, he was very, very receptive to it, even though it was a new idea at the time. And then we moved, when I moved abroad, you know, David Moyes handles data much much differently and the man is is a is a incredible worker his work ethic is unbelievable and the things that are on his plate uh, are significant to the level of obviously the pressures that come with managing in the Premier League so my particular approach in that regard was we, we started reporting our information to the assistant manager at the time who was Steve Brown and together between myself and Steve, we would have you know, a very clear objective of what training had, you know, the response that we were getting from the players physically and mentally because of training, and then how we would communicate that to the, to the manager verbally was a much more effective way of handling it. Uh, and then as we moved into the Roberto Martinez phase of the club, uh, he had brought in Richard Evans as a high performance director. So at that time, it made it a little bit easier that I just directed all my reports through Richard. And then you know, Richard was able to communicate those things in, in his daily meetings with the manager. And, and that was the way we progressed training from that standpoint. But now it's much different. You know, uh, Coach Greg Walter is, is hungry for information. He's an, he's an individual that wants it directly reported to him. And wants to know not only what things mean, but exactly how we're going to manipulate things from one day to the next. And at this particular club, it's probably the greatest um, control that I've ever had over, over a training week in, in my 15 years of doing this. Uh, and we've developed a, a very nice level of trust where he understands that I'm going to try to do everything I can to maximize his opportunity to prepare the players for the weekend and our conversations are daily, they're in-depth and uh, we've developed a really, really nice system on, on how we utilize the data to affect training rhythm. Um, the, the reports themselves have evolved over time, but you know, obviously that happens consistently with data. Uh, as you start to refine uh, relationships between different metrics, you start to truly understand which, which uh, variables can maybe be left out of a report, and which ones are vital to be reported. And uh, I've always felt like the the quest for this one number uh, to delineate training load will be a, a quest that will always fail. That's never going to work. And that's because you know as we as we train and we have different emphases in training, different metrics are going to have uh, you know more power and more relevance as you move from one day to the next. So we've developed a system that's uh, that's different in the regard of, of trying to come up with this one specific number. You know, instead, we're trying to look at what the physical impulse is for the training session, and then we want our report to you know organically be able to evaluate um, you know where the where the peak stresses will be and understand how that's going to affect the following day's training. And that's really been uh, an evolutionary process that's that's taken about six seven years. Uh, in terms of getting to where I have it now, but I think that's you know you know that's the way to handle reporting and, and on an individual level uh, it'll it'll never be the same for one from one manager to the next. It's I think for the life of my career it'll always be a one area that will have to be flexible and always uh, you know organic in terms of moving from one method to another. So it's definitely changed dramatically over the over the course of my career and over the course of four different managers, five different managers.
0: So we're just going to take a very quick break in the episode with Steve. So hope you enjoyed part one, first of all, and part two is going to include chats around FMS and movement competency. And something that I've discussed with a couple of other coaches, uh, and that's player top-ups. So the lads that maybe aren't involved at all or on the bench or just come on for a couple of minutes, how Steve goes about keeping them in line with the lads that do play so that's a really interesting uh, chat to get steve's take on that subject so just before i get into part two again just want to say a massive thanks to vald performance makers of the nord board for sponsoring the episode today and as always uh, really appreciate their continued support and the podcast could not would not be the same without them so if you do want to check them out go over to valdperformance.com. That's V-A-L-D performance.com. Hope you enjoy part two, and I'll speak to you soon. So I just want to t- change tact a little bit. Um, I think it quite, probably links in a little bit with the, the kind of data side of things. And that's, um, I think it's this is something that I, um, I've i spoken a couple of times with the soccer guys uh, who I've had on the podcast. And that's um, player top-ups and extras. Um, that the guys may go through um, that haven't played or been on the bench or haven't been involved, and it's just interesting to get your take on it because obviously over here we might have a a two-hour coach journey back home, um, right? Whereas over there you've maybe got potentially a um, a five-hour plane journey. So sure. obviously there's there's logistical uh, problems over there that. We don't necessarily, or the majority of teams don't necessarily have over here. So I'd just be really interested to see, firstly, how you go about um, identifying uh, who who has them top ups and how much topping up they actually do, um, and right. where that kind of information comes from.
1: Right. Yeah. I think uh, um, this one. This one. Uh, I'll try to. I'll try to answer as quickly as I can without boring you with details, but but it, it requires quite it requires a little bit of detail because again, when you're approaching the training week, we as a club have have, uh, have a little bit different you know, methodology. And I don't think that the most efficient way of training a team is to try to get every energy system. Um, and fit it into each week. Uh, I don't think it's a productive way of training a, a soccer team. In general, periodization is quite difficult within the sport, That uh, you know, mainly because of the changes in the fixture schedules and individual needs, much like you're talking about. You've got uh, you know a few different populations of players within every club. You have the players who are playing every minute of every game. You have the players who... Who have limited roles here and there uh, in substitute roles. You have players who make the 18 every weekend but don't play. Uh, that's just the nature of it. It's a very difficult population to keep track of. But when you're in a situation where now what you're trying to do is train specificity, um, you know you really aren't approaching it necessarily from a periodization standpoint, but you're you're approaching it from a system standpoint and if if I'm going to look at any particular week the one thing I can truly understand is this uh, the, because the sport is acyclical even though I've got a particular emphasis for a week for one particular week it doesn't mean that I'm not maintaining uh you know the the these other impulses that are not the emphasis it's impossible to completely isolate one energy system from another when you're training with our methodology and when you're trying to um, you know, to, to physically train a team through through football exercises. For instance, if I'm going to be training on a smaller pitch and smaller field sizes, I know that it's going to become quite intensive in nature. I know that there's going to be a lot of change of direction and change of speed. I know that I'm going to, uh, there's going to be hydrogen ion you know, accumulation. I know I'm going to be training pH buffering. But at the same time, there's still aerobic work being done. I'm not avoiding extensive training. I'm not isolating it out. I'm not going to detrain their aerobic capacity, uh, and I'm not going to detrain uh, you know, their, their systems of speed and speed endurance. That's not going to happen because there's they're still uh, concepts. There's still impulses within the training, but they're not the emphasis because of the size of the field or the number of players that we have in the exercise. At the same time, if the field gets much bigger and I'm doing transitional exercises, that are not continuous but require high velocities over short durations i'm obviously going to have a much greater speed and speed endurance emphasis but there's still change of direction there's still an overall volume of work being done so it's not like all of a sudden i'm going to be detraining these intensive energy systems or these extensive energy systems all it is is that i'm emphasizing one over the other when i do that i can train them to a greater extent And if I use that specificity and I can continue to overlap them in a way that doesn't necessarily overtrain the same chain from one week to the next, then I can actually keep my foot on the pedal uh, without necessarily putting the players at risk for soft tissue problems or things of that nature. Now you overlap that with the different populations that you have within your team. If I've had a specific emphasis in the week, and that emphasis was speed, speed, endurance. And now I've gotten to Thursday, or something that we would call match day minus two. I know that I've done speed already in the week. I know that on the weekend, the pitch sizes are going to be quite large. And so if these players are asked to be involved in the match, I know what an 11v11 11 11 looks like. But I also know what I did on match day minus four, which was more speed oriented. So if I can take some functional exercises on match day minus two, and I can get 10 to 15 minutes of work on a smaller pitch, control the volume and control the the individual durations, then I know that I'm going to be putting a piece of the puzzle in for that population of players in the week. that's going to emphasize a different body chain, a different set of movements that I didn't fatigue on Tuesday and that won't necessarily impact how well they'll be able to train on a bigger pitch on Saturday. Now, you're dancing a really fine line, but that's what we do as performance directors. That's what we do as fitness specialists. Our job every single day, every single week is to try to understand where that line is. And that line is in very different places for different populations on the team. But if I understand it, if I have a very logical theory on how I'm going to address each each population, then I know I can effectively top up and keep the players safe and ready to perform. We have done exhaustive analytics in understanding which metrics are the most important ones to look at on match day minus two when we're trying to evaluate the impact that it'll have on our physical success on the weekend. So we're functioning within a very, very well understood set of limits. And that allows you to make really, really um, gray area decisions without putting the players at risk. And so that's what we really tried to emphasize without being able to address every population. I think that's a good way of just at least giving an example of of how we would start to look at those different populations and place individual sessions within small groups during the week without jeopardizing their ability to have a good physical performance on the weekend. So you know, as you move from one physical emphasis one week to another physical emphasis the next week, all of a sudden what you're gonna do on that particular match day minus two will change. Um, again, because you're trying to expose the players to elements of the game that need to be trained to keep them physically capable, but won't put them in a position where when it matters most, they won't be able to perform. Uh, it's a very sensitive line to dance on, but um, you know we've done it pretty well. And, and again, we're approaching it from the perspective of using data in the most intelligent way we can.
0: So, if you had a couple of players on a on a Saturday that I don't know, you, you, the, the coach is trying to waste some time, and they come on with three, come on with five minutes to go. Are yeah. you are you doing any extra work with them them guys that have only got five minutes, and the other couple of subs that have got no minutes? Are you yeah, doing yeah s- definitely.
1: Okay, definitely. So how I, are you- I feel like go every ahead. minute is important. Every minute. is, Sorry to interrupt there, Ross. but man. yeah, yeah, I feel like every second you have with the players is really important. But I also feel like you've got to have a finger on the pulse of what of what's happening from an emotional perspective as well. And I think the collectively as the performance staff, we do a pretty good job of that. If we're in the following day, if it's a home game and we're in on Sunday, I'll never train anybody after the game on Saturday. What am I going to get in that fifteen minutes that I'm not going to get to an even greater extent in a full training session the following day? Uh, I think sometimes that. Um, sometimes our egos get in the way and we think that every second we spend with them is the most important second of their lives. And that's, that's not the case. No, that's not the way it works. And I, I was like that early in my career. So I can't necessarily say that I've never been like that because I definitely have. But the, uh, as you start to spend more time with players and understand their role, understand their emotional roller coaster as As weeks grind on, I think you have a better appreciation for what their mental state is. But our players at least know that what our expectation is in terms of maintaining fitness, and we'll. we'll, I don't think uh, any player expects to, you know, to leave a match where they've had limited minutes and not put in some sort of work. Uh, That's part of their job description. To be fair, Rob, you know, I think these guys understand that their job is to be fit, ready to play, and and they want it. Uh, They don't they don't necessarily. Uh, you know, want a day to go by where they don't feel like they've done something to make themselves better. So we'll always, again, think of what was the training week we've been through, what were the minutes they got in the match, what did they do on match day minus two, and now what's coming in the following week. We might only have a window of opportunity after the game to address slow speed work that has a certain interval to it and a certain tempo. So that we can prepare them in a way uh, that doesn't leave them um, that doesn't leave them incapable of starting the training week in a in a positive way. Uh, everything comes off of understanding what the physical impulses were through data, understanding what the impact of those impulses were on their body from an external and internal load perspective, and then uh, as long as you know us as a staff, we have um, you know good information coming to us, and we. Communicate that information to each other. Then all of us will know exactly what the expectations are of the players who don't get the minutes they need on on a Saturday. Um, if we have, you know, a following day, if we have Sunday off, then then we obviously know exactly how to address those players. Cool. So I just want to touch on one thing before
0: I let you go, and that is sure. um, movement competency in the FMS. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you've had the exposure um, uh, of the guys at Exos and yeah. they're obviously big proponents of the uh the fms itself is that is that something that um that you've carried forward into into other roles um or uh, do you use a uh, a different system or create your own system for for assessing uh, functional movement
1: yeah i think the the whole emphasis on understanding movement um is vitally important we've We've definitely adapted the idea of the functional movement screen into our own program that we've created ourselves. My particular idea on understanding movement is, uh, is one where I think moving to a video based system is going to produce more fruit. So that was the first requirement that I had of the group is I said, let's come up with our own screen. Uh, and let's make sure that video is a pillar of that screen. Uh, that was the most important thing for me. And nowadays, with tablets and technology, you, you can you can screen, you can make video-based screens with very little financial resources. And we were able to do that quite quickly. So we created a screen that basically looks at, one, what does is, what is the player's posture look like first? What are our starting positions? Starting positions are very, very important. And mobility from one joint to the next is going to have a significant influence on, on how well our body moves. So we're, very, we're big on postural analysis. We use, um, you know, different alignabods and things of this nature to make sure that we're looking at different plumb lines in an effective way. And we've caught numerous leg length discrepancies. We're seeing issues that start down lower in the chain and are affecting things higher up. That we know will have to address individually in our correctives, and uh, and once we've once we've gone through the postural perspective, then we we want to look at functional movement and uh, be creative and unique in, in the movements that we select, and then uh, you know try to maintain multiple views of that movement uh, while still creating a screen that's quite quick. And time efficient for the players, uh, and we've refined that particular screen over the last two and a half seasons, and we'll probably continue to refine it as we move into next year. But that's been a big, big component. You know, we we understand. I think you know this kind of moves into an area of something that is very important to me. That that I think strength and conditioning is kind of just grown stale a little bit to be to be perfectly fair. The the work that's done in the gym. Uh, You know, I have visited club after club between sports from baseball to rugby to cricket to football. And the one thing I'd say that predominates is there's a lot of great exercises being prescribed to players. But I don't think that practitioners across the board truly know why they're implementing the exercise. I think you have a base idea that an individual needs single leg strength. and If you were to say, hey, I've got a Bulgarian squat that I know is great for single leg strength, I'm going to give them a Bulgarian squat. I don't think that's a bad thing. But I think what's being missed is that it's not just about developing strength. We want everything we do in the gym, whether it's evaluative through the screen or it's a corrective or it's a a performance program that comes from the screen, everything we give them, the number one objective is transfer. The number one goal in our gym is transfer, period. So if I'm going to give somebody any exercise whatsoever, it has to come from one perspective, understanding how the body communicates with the environment. And that's why the screen is so important. The exercises you select in the screen have to give you an idea of, one, how does the body communicate with the environment? How does it react to the information that it's given? And then that needs to translate into an exercise that makes them better at their deficiencies. And I don't think that's necessarily what's done across the board. As soon as my foot hits the ground as an athlete, the first question my body asks is, where's my center of mass? And as my foot hits the ground, it starts to gain information from the environment, ground reaction, force, the effect of gravity, momentum, whatever it is that's affecting my foot going into the ground. I already have an objective in my head of the direction I want to go in. And in order to solve that problem, in order to solve the question of where am I? How can I get where I want to go? The body first needs to identify where its center of mass is. And that's all the body's doing with this very flexible foot that starts to collapse into the ground. And as the body starts to respond above it, it gets through the knee and it gets through the hip. And then it starts translating through you know, that transformational zone through the lumbar spine and through the core it's going to decide because of where my foot is and where my center of mass is and because I want to change direction in this particular direction, I know I'm going to have to take an extra step. And that's how the decision-making process happens within sport. The body is automatically communicating with the environment and then coming up with the exact solution necessary to execute what it is that I want to execute. And what we should be doing in the gym is is exposing the player's to that particular environment as realistically as we can, and then give them the opportunity to improve in how they respond to it. We want them to respond to the environment in a very coordinated, powerful way. But if if all you're doing is assessing what they need and giving them an exercise that you read about, I don't think that's necessarily going to address the issue. Do I need single leg strength? Absolutely. Is a Bulgarian squat a good exercise for single leg strength? Of course it is. But am I truly looking at the exact way that my particular body is going to respond to that single leg stress? Is the exercise I've chosen going to give them the best opportunity to understand the coordinated process that needs to take place for me to produce power in response to that particular stimulus? That's getting missed. That's getting missed. And, uh, you know, our screens need to evaluate that. And then that needs to translate into exercises where you know we're utilizing a very organic environment in the gym to start to produce much more efficient and productive exercises. I think you know if you're not making up an exercise every day, uh, you know then I think you're missing something.
0: So who are your who are your biggest influences, Steve?
1: Well, I mentioned it earlier. You know, the, the Gary Gray is a is a is a you know the father of function as far as I'm concerned. And I really just see a lot of concepts that Gary talked about years ago, just being repackaged with different terminology. And that's not to say that different, uh, you know, different minds haven't taken what he's talked about and really developed on them in a powerful way. I'm not saying that because that's happened in so many different realms from some brilliant strength coaches that I've come across in my time. Um, but Gary's one of them. You know, if you want to talk about internal cueing versus external cueing, you know, that I know that's a very, um, hot topic at the minute and a very, and it's brought a lot of attention to how we're training players, how we're communicating to players, how we're teaching players, you know, but Gary's talked about conscious versus subconscious for a very, very, very long time. Task oriented instruction has been around for a while. And that's, uh, again, not to say that it shouldn't be a part of what we're doing, But it's just disappointing that there was a gap, to be honest. You know, we've moved away from it from quite some time. And now the concepts are coming back into physical training just with different vocabulary. Uh, And that's a good thing because it needs to come back. Because I think function's gone away a little bit from a strength and conditioning perspective. Um, And and Gary was uh, and Gary is and still, you know, was and still is uh, a pioneer in that particular regard. So he's been a great influence on me. Uh, for sure. I've, I've enjoyed his stuff. I've really enjoyed reading uh, the material that I've gained recently from Franz Bosch. That's been a, that's been a lot of fun to, to dive into a different way of communicating certain concepts. And um, I think strength and conditioning needs to become more cerebral again. And reading his latest text, Strength and Coordination, is, is, I think has been a return um, of that cerebral emphasis within the gym. Uh, you know, really thought-evoking book that now allows us to go into the gym and look at how we have our gym set up. Is our performance area even set up properly for us to effectively talk about transfer, to look at it in that perspective? Um, you, You know, Franz Bosch calls it transfer, and Gary called it, you know, the zone of transformation. That same concept of how do we get from the eccentric load, the environmental response, to the concentric unload, you know, to that, you know, from that zone of transformation when one becomes the other. Uh, That's the basic concept of transfer. You know, how do do we get from the point of loading into the ground to the point of exploding out of it in a coordinated way? Uh, And friends, Bosch kind of shed light on that again in a really, really cool and creative way. And I've enjoyed reading his material. Uh, And then, you know, and outside of that, I think you, I've picked up, so many fantastic concepts from guys that you may or may not have ever heard of you know i i was able to to train for two years under jim liston and jim's a very uh, exciting guy who loves what he does he's so passionate about function and strength and conditioning and um it's been great to reunite with him now that he's up with the club in toronto i've gotten to see him more now than i have in a really long time and um i'm I'm happy that he's back in the sport full-time as he was in his early days, because it's been great to to talk with him again. And these guys have, um, you know, they've done a great job of, of influencing me and, and giving me the freedom to, to kind of take concepts and, and ask questions about them and, and see if through collective thought and collective communication and, and, um, and collaboration, can you, can we discover something new? You know, can we move things forward in a way where now we're, peeling off another layer of this onion and, and seeing another exciting layer underneath, you know? And so those guys have been influential in kind of shaping the way I, the way I look at strength and conditioning. And then uh, I got to work with a great head of medical at Everton, kind guy named Daniel Donaghy, who I think did a great job in, in getting me to understand player emotion. Um, you know, how, how the sport itself, how past experience and pressure, um, how past trauma, how culture. Uh, upbringing, all influences, what the player will give you from one weekend to the next. Uh, he was, he was very, very mindful in that regard, and in getting me to settle down from the concept of trying to understand why a player doesn't buy in, why they do buy in, what motivates a player, one player versus another. And I thought Danny was a was a great influence on me, a calming influence on me that that helped me just take a step back at times and evaluate what's important from the player from one week to the next and what emotions or influences might be causing a particular behavior. And that gives you the background to understand, okay, now how can we get this player moving, motivate them uh, to come closer to that that elite performance one more time. And he, he was a great influence in that regard. Uh, and, and along the ways, I'm sure I'm not done. I'm sure there'll be many more people that will uh, that will shed light on on new ideas and, and give me the opportunity to kind of see another, maybe peel another layer. And, uh, you know, there's some great guys in the league right now. You've interviewed David Tenney already, and David and I have known each other a long time, and he's a great guy. And then, you know, Darren Burgess, who I got to know in, in, in England. I was at Everton while he was at Liverpool, and he's been a great influence on me as well. So, you know, there's a lot of great people doing great things out there, and I hope the industry just continues to move in a positive direction.
0: Brilliant. Well, uh, I'm just conscious of time, Steve. Um, yeah, sure. Well, where can um, where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm on most social media platforms. I don't think I'm as active as others, but um, you know, I, I do enjoy using those particular pathways to try to promote ideas that I think are going to help the industry. i uh, the. You can find me at Twitter at @steve_tashjian. Um, and then I'm on, um, I'm on Instagram as well. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. I'm easy to find. So, uh, definitely, you know, shoot me a, shoot me a quick message on any of those platforms. And I'd love to discuss these particular, you know, concepts and different ideas and performance with anybody that's willing.
0: So that's T-A-S-H-J-I-A-N. Correct. 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 (laughs) You got it, man. I'm glad I didn't read, um, one of the many, um, iterations of that that i fired over to you <laughs> last week uh,
1: you've got you've got confirmation that that's the true spelling you've got it
0: excellent good that's all i needed <laughs> good from the horse's mouth cool sure. well thanks a lot for your time steve um really appreciate your uh, your insights and uh thanks for giving up your time to chat
1: no problem i appreciate it man thank you rob and congratulations on surpassing 100 episodes man i think thank that's you. great thank you very much mate no problem man Speak
0: soon, mate. Okay, Thanks for tuning in to episode 110 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Steve. So just before I let you go, just want to let you into a little bit of a secret that I've been keeping for um, a couple of months now and that's the Pacey Performance Podcast will be having a new home within hopefully the next couple of weeks. So I'll be putting it out on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all that kind of thing to uh, kind of announce the merge. But everything will stay the same with... With regards to the podcast so just keep an eye out for that hopefully the new website will be the home of uh, lots of great content more video more written articles and obviously the podcast uh, will continue as normal so keep a look out for that so massive thanks again to vald performance makers of the nord board for sponsoring this episode today uh, really appreciate their continued support So look forward to speaking to you in episode
1: 111 um, and thanks for listening.